Welcome to the Real Estate Club podcast, Cash on Cash Connections. I'm Luke Shamel with Blake Ripley. And today our guest is RF Qureshi. Uh, Blake, I thought this was one of my favorite conversations that we've had on the podcast. I don't know about you, but I was entertained for the entire time. Yeah, I think RF gets into more of the entrepreneurial side of real estate, which we haven't really heard that perspective yet on the podcast. So I think it'll be good to hear. I hope you enjoy it as much as Blake and I have. So one of the things I'm curious about is how you went from an engineer and got interested in real estate. So if you just want to talk a little bit about that. Sure. So I graduated high school in 1990. And if you remember, you probably don't because you're too young for it, but 1990 was a very bad real estate recession year. And uh, it was a very bad year for business schools in, in general. So I think right about when I was graduating, there was a piece on 60 Minutes about uh, MBAs and BA graduates working at McDonald's flipping burgers because the economy was so bad in 1990. And so at that point, I decided I'm not going to do business. Let's go with the engineering route, which guarantees you a job, guarantees you the highest pace, the pay for an undergraduate major, and just take the engineering route. So did chemical engineering, I think at the time, chemical engineering was the highest paid major. And if you're gonna spend four years in college, miles is, you know, get a degree in the highest earning major. Uh, just, there's no reason not to. Um, and, and, and yeah, even if it, it doesn't align with your interests. Now, again, my parents are both chemists. Chemical engineering is very much in line with what they do. So it's, it's not like a big stretch. Uh, I grew up uh, in a chemical lab my whole life. Uh, the house I currently live in has a chemistry lab in it, uh, fume hoods and chemicals. So I'm very familiar with chemis- chemistry and, you know, and, and uh, engineering with just, you know, chemistry plus math. So I did chemistry, chemical engineering. From there, um, I went to work for Intel uh, as a process engineer, uh, but with much more focus on the business side of, of the process as opposed to just the technical engineering side. They start you on the engineering side, but as they see uh, your interests, they let you sort of go to the business side because Intel was a company that was basically founded by engineers and every function in that company was done by engineers. So it didn't matter if you want to do HR, you hire an engineer. You want to do finance, you hire an engineer. You don't hire business majors to do any of the major functions uh, typically because it was an engineering run company. And so engineers hired other engineers and you could pretty much do any task you wanted. And when I work at Intel, I got a lot of exposure to real estate and I got a lot of exposure to finance uh, because uh, that's where my, where my interest was. Even before I started chemical engineering, my interest was in real estate. But again, like I said, in 1990, there were just no jobs uh, at the time. And there was really a very poor outlook for uh, business majors. So uh, engineering was sort of my path to sort of uh, get back into business some other way. And so as I worked through uh, Intel, I basically uh, moved towards more of the finance side and moved more towards the human resources side. And the reason I chose human resources of all things, uh, which is a very non-technical field, uh, is what you realized very early on when you worked in a big engineering company is hiring the right people made all the difference between winning and losing on any given uh, uh, project, any given task. And the people that we hired that were great, did outstanding work and you just bet on them, things got done. People that were not so great, they were a disaster and you had to get rid of them as quickly as possible. So I realized that really the secret to running a business 
it's not really the business idea or the or the you know management. It's really just hiring smart people because smart people will always pivot and get the right solutions or get the right uh, answer and take your business in the right direction. So I really focus on you know what does it take to be a good hiring manager uh, at a large scale. So we you know when we had to hire, we had to hire two thousand people at once, and we had to hire wow. for one. Yeah, basically for one, you know, four or five month period, they have to also show up, get trained, and then start a factory for us. So when you're hiring at that scale, you got to go to multiple universities, uh, find the best students without a lot of work, a lot of effort. Uh, we typically only did interviews for about 30 minutes. And the way I did recruiting back then was I basically emailed my professors at UW and said, here, tell me who your best 25 students are. Those 25 students got automatic offers to come to Arizona and interview with us. Then I went to Michigan State, found a professor, said, hey, look, I came from Wisconsin. This is how I do things, this is how I you know, get best students from Wisconsin. You want to help me? And you know, engineering professors are very you know, analytical and like, yeah, here, here's a list. Just go do it or just run with it. And just like that, we just went from you know, college to college that were basically top engineering programs in the country uh, where people wanted to move to Arizona. So you know, there's no point in going to East Coast. New York kids do not want to go to Arizona. Uh, Florida kids do not want to go to Arizona, but Wisconsin, Illinois, uh, Michigan, Minnesota, uh, New Mexico, Colorado, Texas, those uh, type of schools, uh, they wanted to go to Arizona uh, because the cost of living was very cheap. So that's how you know I started um, doing my recruiting and, uh, and that was very successful. And then just as I wrapped up hitting our hiring goals, uh, it was year 2000, late 2000 or mid 2000. And uh, the internet bubble crashed. So our, our stock had gone from $8 to 80. And uh, surprisingly, that summer, uh, NASDAQ was dropping like 23% over the last couple of months. Intel held up. And it was, I knew it was just a matter of time. Can't hold up anymore because everything else around us is sort of collapsing. And if computer demand collapses, microchip demand will also uh, go with it. So uh, I was basically planning my exit strategy at that point. And sure enough, what happened about uh, six to eight months later was uh, I was in charge of running a program where we needed to convince people not to show up for work. So people that I hired basically not take the offer and not show up to work uh, their first day of work. Or people that are currently working at Intel, uh, if they want to voluntarily leave, uh, we give them six months a year of salary to quit their job voluntarily. So we worked worked on that program, and the goal was I had hired about 1,800 people at the time, and they wanted to get down to 1,400 uh, due to the bubble bursting. And uh, so uh, we offered this plan to everyone in the company as well as all the new hires, and I actually ended up taking it myself because, you know, you get paid a year's worth of salary. uh, That's a lot of money for doing nothing, essentially. (laughs) And uh, so I took it, and that was my outlet to get back to Madison and uh, come back here for schooling, uh, as well as do some developments out here, uh, because uh, before I had left uh, Madison, my parents had bought some land for me uh, to do development on, since I chose not to go out of state for college, uh, the money that they had saved basically had sort of went into into land at the time. And so yeah, the land is appreciated, and rather than selling it off, uh, I decided to come back to Madison to work on the development of it. Uh, and get back into real estate because uh, it was just a perfect pivot time. Uh, the bubble just crashed, and luckily the real estate market took off over the next couple of years. Uh, so 02 was probably the bottom, and then three, four, five, six low interest rates. 
demand for housing spiked, uh, lender requirements dropped uh, to basically, you know, you could just give your name and they would give you a loan. Uh, there was no requirements. And when I sold my house in Arizona, I sold it to someone that had no social security card, no legal right to work in the United States, no legal right to be in the United States, yet they could get 100% LTV loan on my property and wow. buy at my house uh, at, at the record pricing. Uh, so crazy. no appraisal has ever been that high, but it didn't matter. There was a bank that was willing to lend them money at 2% above the going rate. And uh, that's all the person cared about. He had plenty of income. He just didn't have any paperwork. And so that was the sort of the start of the housing boom. And when I saw that, I was thinking to myself, I said, I'm probably selling too early because if it's this easy to buy a house, just think how many new homeowners will come into the area. And sure enough, that home I sold in Arizona doubled in value uh, over the next two and a half years uh, from basically 02 to 05. It was incredible. I mean, uh, and it didn't matter what you bought in Arizona. Phoenix was just growing that fast because, again, the loans were being available to anyone that wanted them. So, so you know, when I saw that, I'm like, okay, I started to see how financing really can drive uh, home ownership and can drive valuations. And now we're in the same part of the cycle. Financing is dirt cheap. Uh, home values are going up 10, 15% year over year. And it's all because of financing. The only good thing about this time uh, is there's no more uh, liar loans or uh, loans that where you just had to give your name and you got a loan. You actually have to go through the underwriting. Uh, there aren't as many sources of funds as there were in the 04, 05, and 06 time period. Uh, so the subprime market doesn't exist really right now. Um, and so that's a good thing. So you're not going to have as many defaults. And home values are still pretty reasonable uh, relative to rent levels. So it's a very good time to you know buy a home even at these higher prices. So that's sort of how I got back into real estate. The reason I mean I, I you know I enjoy real estate is it's a passive investment. You put money to work and it pays you a return either through appreciation or it pays you through a, a quarterly dividend, and uh, that basically allows you to do other things uh, more like your hobbies as opposed to work for a living because you have passive income coming in. If you want to make an additional return. You become the managing partner and actually, you know, do the hard work. Uh, you can make even, you know, double the return, or at least on an IRR basis, on a cash cash basis, maybe only make it only a little bit more. But on an IRR basis, you can get you know really nice returns uh, if you want to become the managing partner and actually put in all the effort uh, to do the work. Uh, but if you don't, you can always be an LP and uh, get you know majority of the return, much better than anything you can get in the stock market, better than anything you can get. Uh, uh, in any other market, actually, uh, actually, it's not true. There's other markets like art and stuff. There are you can make higher returns, but in general, uh, real estate, with the risk level that it, it sort of uh, provides, it's uh, it is probably the safest way to make money. And then you have these great tax benefits uh, that you know the government gives you, uh, real estate investors, where you can write off a depreciation um, without actually incurring that loss of depreciation, loss of value in the property. Uh, and then you have 1031 exchanges, 1033 exchanges, which also help uh, defer capital gains. So those benefits, uh, when you do it over a 20, 30, 40 year period, they really multiply your returns, uh, something that you, know, you could not do in the stock market uh, unless you found a Google or you know, just a perfect home run type company. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think real estate is definitely one of the best ways to you know, build long-term wealth. So, Looking back at 
from your transition to from Intel into uh, getting your master's degree at Madison, did you always have that in sight um, early on and then you're just kind of waiting for the right moment? Or was it more of just, you know, the situation with, uh, you know, the dot com bubble? So the real estate was always a plan. So, you know, the, you know, if you come from an Asian country, real estate is your core wealth asset. And that's usually the only asset you can typically invest in safely. The stock market is usually corrupted by a government uh, ownership or flows. And so you don't trust the stock market. Uh, you really only trust uh, physical assets, typically real estate. And then if you want gold. So there's a little, probably the two assets that most people will trust in most Asian economies. So if you come from that background, uh, you know real estate's the only way to create wealth in this world, because the stock market is not one that you have, you know you you would consider to be as uh, safe. And so you know real estate is sort of how we've always thought about investing long term. And you know so real estate was always going to be the the way to go. Um, my kids are going to do real estate. They're 15 years old right now. But they're going to get degrees in computer science because uh, the real estate's easy to learn. Uh, the 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 trick is to do a degree in something different, and then use that knowledge to come back into real estate and try to improve the way real estate works uh, or way real estate transacts. So, you know, I know they're going to end up doing real estate because it's so much easier than doing any other profession. Uh, but rather than getting having them get a degree in real estate, uh, which would be the normal path, and then go work for a firm, uh, my advice to them is go get computer science get a little experience, and by 25, you can start your own real estate firm. Uh, and then you don't have to work, you know, for anyone else. So th that's, you know, the big advantage of real estate. You don't have to work for someone else if you don't want to, uh, once you have enough money or you have enough backing. So you don't have to have, uh, you know, your own money. Uh, if you're smart and you're capable, you can easily get other people to invest in you uh, and in your deals because people are hungry for yield. And there are a lot of people in this world, doctors and lawyers, that don't have time or the expertise to do their own deals or manage their own deals. So they're constantly looking for smart people to basically take their money and invest it safely uh, and prudently and, uh, and you know, generate the yield for the risk that they're basically able to tolerate. And um, so, the, you know, the, the secret to sort of real estate is one is raising money. And then two, being smart enough to find the deals. And real estate's everywhere. So there's there's opportunity for everyone everywhere as long as you go to places that are less competitive. Uh, a city like Madison is very competitive because there's a lot of smart grads here. But there's other cities like um, Iowa City, Cedar Rapids, Des Moines, less competitive. And so if you go to one of these less competitive cities, there's a lot of opportunities. There's another way to win, which is just pick a city that's growing in population, GDP, and employment. So you can see like Austin. Uh, there, almost doesn't matter what you buy, you're going to make money over a 10-year period. And so, you know, if you can pick the right city, which I've been fortunate enough to be in Madison. Madison's been, you know, a very good city to also be in. Um, you're going to make, a, you know, outsized returns without much risk. Uh, and then when you have a capital and you have a big uh, university in town, that sort of buffers uh, the volatility of returns uh, because those two institutions are big employers in town and their employment numbers don't change much uh, year to year. So it gives, gives a lot of stability to the overall number in the area. So th those are the two things, you know, that I tell you know students and my own kids is, you know, if you as long as we can pick the right cities and we have smart people 
managing our money or we're doing it ourselves, we're going to be fine. Because if you make good decisions, chances are in 10 years, prices will uh, go up almost every time. Uh, if you pick the wrong city, of course, you're going to get crushed. Uh, and that's you know why I'm not you know trying to invest any more money in places like Milwaukee or Chicago, uh, you know, and picking places that have population growth, have demographics where there's more tech employment, because tech probably is the future uh, of, uh, of the employment sector. And uh, and if you bet on tech, I think you're going to win. Um, I wish I had bet on tech when I was younger uh, and bought properties in Silicon Valley. I was living out there. I, I, I used to live out in Portland. And I work for Intel also. Uh, both those places, you know, have done very well from you know, a price appreciation point of view, but they were always very expensive. Uh, that was a problem. So when at that time I didn't have enough money to invest in those kind of properties, uh, but now you know Austin is looking very cheap to me. So Austin looks like a you know a very good market. Nashville looks very good. Charlotte looks very good. Uh, Salt Lake City, south of Salt Lake City, down to Provo looks very good. So there's a lot of areas that uh, are tech employment centers that looked very cheap relative to what Silicon Valley looked uh, like in the early 90s and mid 90s. And so I'm choosing to you know, go there and hopefully with this uh, recession coming, uh, there'll be a lot of opportunities is my hope. So you know, in a bull market, you just buy and hold and you, know, you, you sell when you think you got a reasonable price or you think the economy's gonna turn. But now when you get this bear market, which is sort of what we have or what we're in right now, the opportunities hopefully will arrive early next year uh, where there'll be a shakeout of you know people that are just over levered. And that's probably one of the best opportunities to buy real estate uh, is when there's a shakeout. Uh, any properties that you bought in 88, 89, 90, 91, 92, right now probably are up 100% or not 100%, 100 times uh, for the land values. That's how much they went up. Anything you bought in 2001 and two, they probably went up you know, to the next peak five times. Again, land. We're not talking about uh, built assets. Right. And then same thing happened in 09 and 010. Anything you bought back then uh, over the last, you know, seven, eight years, you know, spiked up, you know, two, three times uh, minimum. Uh, and some things are up 10x. Uh, places like Austin are up 10x on land values. So, you know, you can do very well if you do land uh, simply because uh, they get so underpriced. Uh, in a recession because you can't develop and developers have to sell something and rather than selling operating assets that are earning income for them they sell their land holdings um, and, and and people just sell sometimes for retirement reasons too debt divorce you know the retirement uh, and so hopefully next year I, I expect to be a you know a great great time to buy real estate unfortunately for graduates it might not be a great time to graduate uh, because <laughs> that's the a number of jobs that might be available uh, because the fact there's less development um, may be limited. But again, if you pick the right cities, growth in employment, growth in GDP, growth in uh, population, you should do great uh, and you should find opportunities. But if you try to force yourself into a city like Chicago, which is not growing, people are leaving. Uh, yes, you're going to struggle. You're going to apply to 100 jobs and you may only hear back from two or three and you may not even get those two or three. Uh, that's just the way it is. But if you find a city that you're happy to live in for the next 5, 10, 20 years and it's growing and has been growing, chances are there's going to be a job for you. And uh, and that's sort of the secret sauce, you know, in, in your graduate is trying to figure out what city will be great 20 years from now. And if you can pick that city now, uh, your life will be very easy. 
I got very lucky working for Intel. I just happened to show up right before the tech boom, right before the internet was sort of started. And so I, all the wealth that I created that was Intel basically gave me came because I was in the right place at the right time. That's all it was. If I had gone to oil refinery instead with my degree uh, or Kimberly Clark and made you know Kleenex, totally different outcome, totally different outlook in life and everything. Uh, so what I realized is it's much more important to pick the right sector uh, and in real estate, that means the right uh, city um, than it is to pick the right degree. And uh, and that's sort of what I sort of saw play out in the 1990s. Uh, just be in the right sector, you did very well. All my friends that graduated, they went work for like Frito-Lay and all these, you know, traditional manufacturing firms and none of them made any money. And the few that went to technology, uh, like Texas Instruments, Intel, IBM, they all crushed it because again, the NASDAQ spiked up like, uh, I mean, like what DoorDash did in the last couple of days in the IPO and Airbnb did in the last couple of days where things were just, you know, they, they opened at a double the valuation. Right. Back then they would right. open at five times the IPO price. So a $15 stock would open at 80 oh, and then it would go oh. up to 250, 300. Uh, <laughs> and then in the, in the dot com crash, it would come back down to five, you know, not down to five. It would go way past this, way below its IPO price and get crushed 95%. So when you saw that playing out year after year in the mid 90s and late 90s, uh, you realized technology was a place to be uh, until it wasn't. And 2001, it, it is no longer the place to be because it got too competitive, uh, which is why I think I started to sort of plan my exit strategy because I knew it was, we can't make money in a competitive world. We make, a, we make money at Intel because we were a monopoly. And uh, as long as we're a monopoly, we make money. And the minute we stop becoming a monopoly, we stop making money. I worked at Great Wolf Resorts. That concept was very much like what we did at Intel. We were a monopoly. We created a resort with an indoor water park. No other product like that exists anywhere near us. And you know, you, rather than getting a $100 ADR, you get $250. And that spread created incredible returns for the investors. But the minute a competitor came in and opened up near you uh, or in a better location than you, you got crushed. All the value you created is gone. And the assets actually starting to trade, you know, 20, 30% below uh, the replacement cost. How do you identify when it's time to leave, when it's time to shift gears and, and do something else? Yeah, so the, the way you sort of um, get this intuitive sense is you look at sort of bid-ask spreads. At the bottom of the market, the bid-ask spreads are usually very wide. There's a big difference between what people are willing to sell at and what people are willing to buy at. And when you have that widespread, it's usually a good time to buy. Because that's, you know, when sellers don't haven't decided to come down on their price, buyers are too scared to basically pay up to buy assets. And if you come in somewhere near the middle, you can buy good assets. On the flip side, when the bid-ask spreads are very tight, where buyers are paying basically the ask price or paying above the ask price, uh, then you know you're in an overheated market. So if you list a home and you get five bids and five offers, you know you're in the right time to sell. So you sell when the bid-ask spread tightens up or it becomes negative, essentially, where buyers are actually paying more than the asking price, uh, which is telling you it's a really hot market. And uh, and then you tend to sell when the spread is wide. Another way to see this is if you study finance futures um, in the oil markets, there's backwardization and contango. Those That concept of uh, uh, backwardization and contango play the same way. Uh, when the oil market is trading higher in the current month than in, in the future months, 
it's a it's a indication that current demand is very very high uh even though the future prices are showing lower prices that's the time to buy oil because that means the demand is way outstripping the supply and people are you know paying whatever it takes to buy the oil today as opposed to wait a month to get it slightly cheaper the real estate markets play the same way when that bid gets past the ask and everyone's fighting for deals you you just get out you know the prices will go up uh it's not the it's not that peak it's not the top but it's a good time to start you know lightening up your positions uh and right now uh single family homes are doing very well what uh, my parents are selling what i'm selling is single family homes we're getting rid of all the rental properties uh and going back into land so we were cash flowing for the last you know five ten years and now we flip to the other side uh and go back into you know basically non-income producing land uh, for development uh, because that's what's going to get cheap next year so we're selling now with the intent to buy uh land uh, in the first quarter second quarter it just depends on when things get cheap enough uh, in the cities that i'm looking at to buy and then that, that holding will probably be held on for between five to 15 years uh, no one no intention to sell quickly unless development comes quickly to the area because again we're going to probably be one or two miles away from the development line and the water line and the sewer line because that's where, where the land is you know just dirt cheap relative to uh what it could be in 5 10 15 years what are some what are, what are some of our experiences that you've learned like throughout your career like when you're first starting out kind of going back to um after you got your master's you get into your your role at uh, Great Wolf Resorts, and how did you like learn the development process? Was that something that they were, you know, you were taking up by asking, you know, people that were working there? Is it something that you know you're doing on your own? How how did that play out? Sure. So the the, the key to getting a good job uh, is again, don't worry about the company. Uh, instead, worry about the location. So I really wanted to live in Madison because I have property in Madison. So I had to work in Madison. Great Wolf Resorts happened to be one of the best companies in Madison, and they're planning an IPO. So that's what attracted me to that company. The second thing you want is great uh, coworkers. You want people around you that have a lot of experience, a lot of expertise, and uh, and they're going to essentially count on you to you know help them make deals, create value, whatever you want to call it. So you got to pick a company where there's smart people all around you. And at Great Wolf, there's only like I think five people or four people in the development group. Uh, Joe Walsh was one of them at the time, and uh, and then uh, my boss and you know there's a director of project management and director of construction. Uh, there's, so there's only like a handful of us. And uh, by being in that small group of very qualified people that probably had 20 to 30 years experience each, and I had like you know two, that basically opened my eyes to the whole process. Uh, very quickly and a very steep learning curve. And one of the first things that they had me work on was a project that was basically in default in California. It was an investment that they had made uh, where there's liens, uh, there was uh, seismic issues with, with the construction. So the structural engineers were not agreeing on how to complete the retrofits. And the project was supposed to be a $7 million project, but it was going to be heading towards like a $15 million project. And it ended up being like a $30 million project is, is that bad of a disaster. And so they just sent me out there uh, literally for three months to go figure it out. And <laughs> and I, I showed up and I basically we had a contractor that didn't have a license to practice in California. Uh, we had liens 
from many different contractors because we had paid the general contractor, but he hadn't paid any of the subcontractors. And then we had percent complete uh, that the architect had signed off on that was nowhere near the true percent complete of the project. So it was, you know, they, they had basically or inflated the percent complete so they could get paid out more. So we had an architect issue, we had a general contractor issue, and then we had subcontractor issues. Uh, and on top of that, we had city loan uh, that had uh, Davis-Bacon requirements, which is basically paying prevailing wage and then auditing it on a monthly basis. And we had historic tax credits, which uh, are federally granted tax credits uh, that had even more restrictions on the projects. So it was a pretty hairy deal. There was no reason for this company in Wisconsin to be working on this type of deal. Uh, it, it was just, you know, a disaster waiting to happen. And since we were going public, we needed to sort of shed these assets, you know, uh, quickly because the IP was going to make so much money that we no longer want to be sort of caring about these assets. So the, the goal here was just to get this asset completed and sold. So we got the asset completed after a lot of issues and, uh, you know, two years of brain damage, essentially. And we had it ready for sale and we had all the owners ready to sign and sell to CIM Group, which is a uh, private equity firm out in uh, Hollywood that is very successful, does primarily institutional money and hires the very best students from USC, UCLA, Berkeley, uh, wherever they can find out, basically California schools. They only hire typically California schools. And so it's a, it a great company. They know exactly what they're doing. And um, we had all partners signed except for one. The partner that brought the deal to us uh, and brought us to California that partner refused to sign because that partner had no skin in the game. We all put money into the into the project, but that partner was basically the finder's fee kind of partner. So uh, they had he had no money invested, and the sale price was such where there's no money coming out. It was basically just, just we're just getting out at essentially a break even or small loss type um, scenario. And that person refused to sign, and uh, as a result, uh, three years later the property goes into foreclosure. 2008 2009 occurs and the retail tenants default on the property uh, multifamily is still doing fine and uh, so that we and rather than selling for like 24 million we end up foreclosing out of it at 10 million wow which leads to all types of bankruptcies and uh, and workouts with lenders a lot of issues and um, so through that process I realized control is the number one thing that you need in any deal you never share control with anyone uh, if somebody wants to share control with you, don't, don't make them. They're not your partner. You only want partners that don't that are willing to sort of give up control to you 100%. So I won't do any deal where I'm the MP where I don't have 100% control. And if someone doesn't like it, no problem. Just you know, you're not going to work with me. Um, as an LP, I'll give you 100% control. Right. So if, if, it's a, if I'm in a city that uh, I don't understand or I don't have time to manage or an asset I don't really want to manage, you have 100% control. So I'll give you my money, you deal with it. But if you, if I'm the MP, I want 100% control in the deal. And as a result, I'll probably not have any partners uh, in any of my deals because some people will refuse to do, you know, give up that uh, control because in a partnership, people think it should be 50-50 or there should be, you know, uh, there should be some level of sharing and decision-making. But I've learned from that one experience, you never ever let someone else dictate uh, your future uh, when you are the managing partner, because you have to be 100% responsible uh, and you have to take the, the losses. So, you know, when you get older in your life, that's one of the key lessons is you want to have control. Control is the most important thing. And uh, it's very hard to achieve as you get bigger and bigger scale. 
So as a result, I'm going to be limited in my scale. And that's a decision I made just because I know I, uh, I sleep better at night knowing that I have 100% control on everything I do. If I want to get bigger, I have to give up that control and chances it, it won't happen. Not, not for my life. Maybe my kids will you know, choose differently uh, and they may have partners. But um, for me, I've learned kind of keep control of the deal every, every single time. So never, ever share this control. The second thing that uh, got out of working at Great Wolf, and again, you learned a lot at Great Wolf very quickly because, again, we had to go through an IPO process. We got bankers, lawyers, scrutinizing everything. Um, the other thing you, gotta, you realize is you need to keep very good accounting books. Your financial records uh, and the document trail uh, is very, very critical in case you ever get audited for tax reasons, in case you get sued. Uh, you know, when you go public, uh, investors sue you sometimes because they're like, well, I, want, I signed up for a private company and now you're going public and, uh, and the price that you're buying me out is, is not acceptable. And we're like, well, you can take shares. Well, they're like, no, I don't want to be in a publicly traded company. And the reason they don't want to be in a publicly traded company is they don't want to watch their net worth change on a minute-to-minute uh, minute basis or even on a month-to-month -month basis. They just want to cash. They just want to check every month or every quarter, and they don't want to see the volatility of the asset in real time. Now, uh, you know, they want a truly passive investment that's out of sight. A check shows up every quarter, and and sometimes the check is a little bigger, sometimes it's a little smaller. But they're not worried about the change in valuation of the equities piece uh, because they're not planning to sell. And that's why you invest typically in you know, the private partnerships because you don't have to worry about uh, the daily volatility or the monthly volatility or the yearly volatility, uh, which is what they like. So good documentation, good records, very important. And either you learn how to do that yourself or you hire a good CPA to do it for you. Uh, very, very critical. The next critical piece in a any kind of development deal is a lawyer. You gotta have a, one of the best attorneys in town uh, or for that asset type, uh, depending on, uh, you know, some asset types have certain lease structures and tax credits that you need a, an expert at that type of transaction. The attorney will save you a lot of money. They'll, char they'll seem like they're overcharging you every single time you get a bill, <laughs> but uh, in the end, uh, the attorney is critical to, to protect you uh, from, you know, potential issues. Because when I had to work in Hollywood, literally I was in media, uh, mediation, arbitration, uh, over so many different issues. And what saved us was documentation. What saved us was the attorneys in some cases. And, and, and there's just fighting. You just had to fight, you know, like you're in battle. Uh, because, you know, people in California, they're tough fighters too. Uh, they're, they're seasoned. They're used to litigating things. And uh, so you have to have a you know, good attorney on your team. So if you have a good attorney, a CPA, and then a good just you know, broad-minded urban person, which sort of says, okay, this is the city we're gonna invest in, this is the asset type we're gonna invest in, and you go all in, you're gonna make money uh, because there's not much that can hurt you oftentimes uh, when you sort of check those boxes. So some of you, you know, uh, may consider to go to law school at some point uh, and it might be a really, you know, it's usually a good idea uh, to have that legal experience, but you can easily hire that experience too. You don't need to be a full-time lawyer and give up three years of your life studying law uh, because a lot of the stuff the lawyers do is really cut and paste after a while. 
Uh, a lot of stuff we do in Excel is cut and paste too. I mean, it, it, it's, it's pretty straightforward, but it takes time to develop that expertise uh, on knowing what to cut and what to paste. Uh, so you don't, you know, cut the wrong thing and, and so on. So, you know, the, the, I would say if you really want to be in the real estate business, uh, you know, learn to work well with attorneys and accountants because they're going to be around you all the time. And, and then, of course, the final piece of it is usually the cities you work with. And again, the attorney can help you. You can hire uh, lobbyists to help you. You can hire local experts and PR firms to help you. Uh, there's, again, a lot of resources out there uh, that basically specialize in helping you get through the process um, so you don't you know, have too much brain damage from going through it in tough, <laughs> tough cities. Uh, a lot of cities are really easy, uh, but the cities that are well-educated like Madison, Austin, Boise, um, that's where you'll have trouble because educated population, they have more free time to basically come to meetings and, you know, give their opinions on what things should be and shouldn't be. Uh, while in poorer places, people are busy working one job, two jobs. They don't have time to go complain about, you know, the new Walgreens being put up <laughs> on the corner, uh, whether it should be a Walgreens or a Trader Joe's. Uh, they just don't care. Um, so, you know, that, that's the, I think the, the final piece of the whole development puzzle is, you know, working with cities, which is a piece that takes years and years, decades to sort of perfect because each city is unique, each mayor is unique, each city council is unique. And every, you know, week, every month, uh, I learn something new uh, in this real estate business. You, it never gets old. Uh, engineering was pretty straightforward. You, you learn how to solve something and you, you, you did it and you got very good at it. Every problem that they threw at you looked the same, like the same problem. Real estate almost looks like that. Uh, where every problem looks the same to me now, but uh, there's still always something unique. Uh, there's always some easement that uh, I've never seen before, or there's always some uh, city ordinance that sort of does something to a property and uh, on how it can be developed uh, that just you know haven't seen before. So you're always learning in real estate. You're always uh, finding uh, something that you know is a little different, and then that's just another you know, tool in your toolbox that you can use next time uh, and, and sort of, uh, you know, take advantage of that extra knowledge. Yeah, I think that's some great advice and just some great insights overall. Um, I, I was curious how you transitioned into um, coming back to Madison to, uh, as a you know, faculty member. My first, sorry, I did a one-year master's, uh, which at the time was 54 credits. So it was not like your deal now, which is 30 credits. They basically had a two-year master's. They had basically had a two-year MBA, um, and uh, and that's all they really offered. But on the books, they also had a two-year master's. And when I first started at the UW, um, and they signed me up for these MBA core courses that I had to take that were not real estate related, um, in the first day, I realized I have no interest in doing any MBA core courses. Uh, the materials are not interesting. The professors are not interesting. I have no reason to be here. So at that point, I was about to actually leave. So I went to the chair and I asked, I said, here, can I just go get a master's instead? Uh, I'll, I'll do it in a year. I'll do 20 credits. Uh, and I have plenty of credits from before that qualify at the MBA level. Uh, can I just do a master's? And the chair said, fine. That, you know, we typically don't like to do that. And so I, go, I went ahead and did my master's. And by doing the master's in one year, I took all the real estate classes. So, you know, every class I was offered, essentially, uh, including 750 being my first class I took, which is supposed to be a capstone class, but I took it up front. 
And so I took it up front in first semester. And uh, and then again, it was easy A, all the classes were you know very straightforward for me because again, coming from an engineering background, the math is trivial and the concepts to me are trivial because again, I've done real estate. I, I bought and sold houses before and, and I've looked at land and, and, and what it can be built on the land. Uh, even when I worked at Intel, we used to you know, go basically build factories in Colorado Springs or build a factory in Jerusalem and upgrade it. I saw a lot of development, uh, and, and so I, none of this stuff was you know, difficult. So went through the program one year, and uh, that summer I decided to work at Great Wolf as an intern uh, with the intent of potentially come back for a PhD the following semester uh, or just continue to work depending on how things go. And um, at the time, I chose to just continue working at Great Wolf. And Barry Perkel, who was teaching 750 at the time, he needed a TA. And there were no second year MBAs available at TA that course, because typically you take that course as your fourth semester in the MBA program. And so I was the only person available to teach or to help him uh, TA the course. And so he, uh, he asked if I would just uh, co-instruct with him. So he didn't ask for, you know, whether I would TA with him because I was no longer part of the university. He said, would I co-instruct with him? Uh, he said, I'll take half the course and he would take half the course. So I said, yeah, that's that's fine. And at the time, the course was taught from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. on Mondays. So it was very, you know, convenient. It didn't impact my work at Great Wolf. And, uh, and he had set it up that way because he didn't want to impact his work at Raymond Management. And so we agreed to, you know, split the course and uh, he taught the entitlement process and more of the development process type stuff. And I taught more of the analysis, uh, which is what you know I was much more interested in at the time. And that's how I got started. And you know, slowly uh, case competitions showed up in 2005. And uh, Steve Malpezzi asked if I would uh, help uh, manage the case competition teams. And at the time, I said, sure, that, that, that's, you know, that's something I, I enjoy doing anyways, because I used to participate in the case competitions. And uh, so the, we started with that. And then slowly things just, you know, added, added. And, and now I'm, you know, 100% appointment, which is, you know, nine credits per semester, essentially. And um, so that's sort of how that progression went. And, you know, I always had an interest in teaching. So it was, it was something I was going to do anyways, maybe 10 years from graduation. It just happened. I was able to, I got the opportunity right off the bat and, uh, and it was with someone that, you know, I really enjoyed uh, having as a professor. I don't know if you guys have seen, have had to Barry talk to you guys yet. Uh, he comes to some of the classes every, every so often, but uh, Barry's like outstanding uh, instructor. I mean, yeah, he's, he's funny and he, he has that uh, raw sense of humor that uh, you need in development because you get so jaded after a while that uh, you, you just have to speak your mind. You don't worry about what people think. You just, you know, you, you speak your mind because it's good that people hear what you really think. And that, that's how Barry should teach and that's how Barry, and how Barry thinks, you know, in general. So one thing I'm curious about is, you know, I'll be starting a job in, uh, in this summer. And one thing that I want to eventually do is, you know, personally invest in real estate. Um, just from your, you know, experience around the industry, is it pretty common or typical to kind of invest on the side personally, you know, while you're um, trying to grow your career, or is it kind of frowned upon? Sure. Um, so if, when you start your career, uh, probably one of the best ways to create wealth long-term is to invest in real estate right as soon as you can. And by what I mean as soon as you can is first you need to pay off anything that's high debt, 
uh, rates. So like credit card debt paid off. Um, student loan debt is fairly cheap. If you have any, uh, that one you can keep. But pay off all your student debt for, I mean, I'm sorry, pay off all your credit card debt. Anything that's high interest rate over say, I don't know, 6% over prime. So 8%, 9%, anything above that, just pay it off. Once you pay that off, um, then you can start looking at real estate. And you're lucky. There's a lot of opportunities through crowdfunding where you can invest small amounts of money uh, into real estate. There's often opportunities within a company to have a LP sidecar where the, the managing member creates a sort of vehicle for family and friends and employees to invest in uh, as an LP investor. And so if your company offers that, take advantage of it. Because if you don't believe in the products that they're working on, then you shouldn't be working there. Right. Um, when I worked at Great Wolf, by the second year, or the, by the end of the first year, I stopped believing in the products that we were working on. The first year I believed in our projects. They were private equity placements that had uh, ROAs of 13%, 14%. As a publicly traded company, we started looking at deals that were 9%, 10% ROA, and the cap rates in the market was like 10, 11% for our assets. So we're basically building assets that were costing us more to build than they were valued uh, yeah. upon civilization. So I no longer believe in the, in the business model. The business model got crushed and it got crushed for two reasons. One, uh, land prices went up in 05, 06, <clears throat> construction costs went up in 05, 06, and competition came into the marketplace. Anyone that wanted to get a loan for an indoor water park could get a loan. When we're doing it, no one could get a loan. Even we had trouble getting loans. Uh, we had a property up in uh, Niagara Falls, the Canada side, uh, and we could not get a loan for it, even with a debt coverage ratio of three. Uh, you know, with most properties you get at 1.4, 1.3, your you know, lenders are really happy. We had a debt coverage ratio of three, and we couldn't get financing for it. And so, you know, the, the, I knew after a year that the model breaks. And sure enough, you know, we're doing deals that where the model was breaking. So that was a, so I, I knew at that point I probably transition out into something else. And luckily there was a, plenty of partners that had left left the firm and they had assets to manage and I was happy to manage the assets. Yeah. So if you had that LP sidecar, uh, that's a great opportunity to invest money into your own company, uh, especially if you believe in your own company. If you don't believe in your own company, you need to start finding another company to work for because um, you're only going to do well if your company grows. If your company grows, people that you work for get promoted. They promote you. And as they go up in the company, you go up in the company. Um, I got very lucky at Intel. Literally, my bosses get, get promoted every year. So I got promoted every year because, you know, somebody has to fill that person's shoe that once that person leaves. And so every year I get a promotion, you get a huge raise. And that's sort of how you become successful is just by being in the right place, right time with the right manager. And if you're in a company where your boss is getting promoted fairly quickly, you're going to get promoted because their projects are getting bigger and better and so on. So, you know, invest in the company. The other way to build wealth and what, what was I sort of got lucky with was I showed up in Arizona and Arizona back in the you know late 90s, it was cheaper to own a home than it was to rent a home or to rent an apartment. A two bedroom apartment was like $1,000. Uh, a 1,600 square foot on a man-made lake was like $800 all in <laughs> mortgage payment. And, you know, at the time they're paying you, let's see it on a monthly basis, like 6,000 a month and your mortgage is $800 a month. I mean, it was just ridiculous not to own. Uh, I wish I had gone to Scottsdale in Paradise Valley and bought something instead of buying in Chandler near my work uh, and, you know, drove the 20 minutes because those properties were affordable. 
And those things just, you know, took off. They just skyrocketed because, again, it's such a desirable place to live. So if you can buy, that's great. The only way you're going to be able to buy real estate, though, is you got to say no to New York, no to San Francisco, um, and pick places where you can say yes to owning real estate. Nashville, you can own real estate. Austin, you can own real estate. Houston, you can own real estate. Um, Provo, Utah, Salt Lake City, that area, you can probably end up buying something. Uh, and don't buy a condo. Whatever you do, do not buy a condo. Buy a single family home with land. Because the land is what appreciates over time. And uh, Or buy a house that is a fixer-upper. You know, something that uh, requires you to you know redo the floors, redo the kitchen, redo the bathrooms. And you'll learn the trades. And, you know, if you're not... If you don't want to get your hands dirty, then you're not probably going to be a good MP uh, because as a managing partner, you need to be able to get your shoes dirty, your hands dirty, uh, because you'll be at the construction site and you'll have to deal with contractors. And if you haven't done the job yourself or some of the tasks yourself, you have less ability to convince them to do what you want them to do uh, in a reasonable manner. So if you've done flooring, you understand what what it takes to do, you know, put new flooring down. You can talk to a foreign contractor a lot better. And when they give you a change order that makes no sense, you're like, you know, I can just go to Home Depot and buy that <laughs> this much. And then they're like, okay, fine. Uh, or they give you a contract bid for or the, you know, concrete. They say, okay, the concrete is going to cost you this much per cubic foot. And you're like, you know, I can just set up an account with a wholesaler, concrete distributor, and they're only charging me this much because you've had concrete delivered to your site before. Uh, on a personal basis. So by having a knowledge and some experience with all the trades, by just doing it on your own project, you'll learn so much about the, the business. That's how I pretty much learned. I just you know, improved my own house and learned each of the trades. I can do, do pretty much do everything except electrician. Uh, I can still, I still get confused when, when there's like a three-way switch and I'm trying to put a sensor timer on there. Every once in a while, I can't figure out how the, the, how the wiring should go because uh, there's this passive, Switches. There's passive wires. There's active wires. There's, there's all kinds of things. Right. Uh, the ground. The ground wire is probably the only one I know for sure how where it goes because it's green or it's it's not even covered in anything. So you know that's the best way to sort of learn the the process. And if you don't like doing those kind of things, then just you know be an LP investor. Um, you can go into REITs also, publicly traded companies, but I'm typically will you know shy away from that because. Again, I have no inside information about their companies and how they're operating. So you're just sort of betting on what the future might be based on, you know, just some analysis. But you really don't have any inside knowledge of the company. When I worked for Great Wolf, I had all the inside information. And the analyst had nothing. I mean, even though they, they listened to all our calls, they talked to us, their understanding of our financials were probably 15% uh, compared to my 100% understanding. So that's how much of a disadvantage you are, uh, even when you're an analyst looking at a company, let alone just an investor. So I never want to invest in deals where I don't have inside knowledge to understand the deal. And that's probably why I don't invest in a lot of tech stocks, because I don't understand, you know, how DoorDash makes money. Well, they don't make money. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how they'll ever make money. Uh, same thing with Amazon. I, know, I don't know how they'll ever make money. Well, now they're making tons of money. Uh, but it took 20 years. And there's thousand casualties along the way so you know you, you want to pick assets where you understand the business you understand how it works you understand what it costs to upgrade something and then you become really good at it uh, that's simple as that you should, you should do it and you get good at it and so i would say try to invest, try to pick see where you can afford to buy a house within the first two years of living there and that will get your eyes open to basically how the real estate process works and if the city is growing 
and the you know jobs are growing and the valuation of your house keeps going up, then you'll learn you know why investing in real estate is so important. And and hopefully you'll you know start becoming an MP maybe at age 30 or 35, uh, as opposed to waiting till age 50. What about like what about, investing like, in a duplex or triplex and having the tenants you know pay your mortgage? Yeah, it's very tempting to do that. Uh, again, single family homes. I still believe is is the golden ticket. People want privacy. They don't want shared walls. If they want shared walls, they can go live in a multifamily asset. Uh, the only thing a duplex gives you over multifamily is a yard. Uh, you know, maybe a partial yard and an entrance, a direct entrance from the street. I'm not a fan of any twoplex, threeplex, or fourplex. If you're gonna own a building like that, go to 32 units multifamily. Find a value add property where you can improve upon it unit by unit and uh and try to you know get 10 friends to do with you much better than owning a duplex or triplex uh, again it depends on the city you're in like in chicago yeah you might have to do something like that you might have to buy a house that that's, that's divided into two pieces and uh, you rent one part part and you live in the other part but um again i want to own as much land as that possible and i want to own as less building as possible because the land is what goes up in value the building depreciates in value over time so if I can find properties where the majority of the asset is really land, like a lake home, land is the majority of the asset. So I bought a property in 2013 where the land price or the purchase price was equal to the land price if I just bought a vacant lot uh, based on frontage, based on size. And the house had zero assigned value to it. And seven years later, this year, past year, I sold that house, you know, I bought it for 265, I sold it for 460. And again, the house was just a 1,600 square foot house, no garage, just a cottage, but the land went up in value. And so I'm always trying to buy assets with great land valuation, where the land is, you know, the the, the star of the show, not the house. Other people want the, the you know, want the physical improvement, uh, but I, I think land is where you want to be. So try to avoid the duplex, triplex, and quadplex is, is my opinion. Um, if you own land and you want to develop something, you might want to decide whether it makes sense to make a duplex, triplex, quadplex, and get better valuation on your sale or on your version. Uh, but that's a trade. That's not an investment. I'm talking about investing for five, 10 years, own the single family, uh, wherever you can. So going back to when you're talking about learning the, the process of development, um, one of the things I always think about is like, how do I go about building my reputation um, and becoming as dependable as possible, whether it's uh, in like an MPLP relationship or just you know, I'm doing my own investments. Like, how do I go around building that reputation? Um, I don't know if you want to say the fastest way or just the, the best way. What's your advice for that? Well, so again, you, if you're in the right city and you find ways to get a deal done or you find ways to get acquire a property or put something under contract and the deal makes sense, investors will follow. It's as simple as that. Uh, it helps to have a degree. So you all have that. That's great. So you have a degree from a top institution in real estate. So that's that alone gets you credibility. Now you just have to show you know how professional you are. That shows up in your Word documents, in your email correspondence, in your PowerPoints, Excel models. You show the detail. And if you show the details and you show you know why the property has potential, the money will come. There, there's always investors looking to invest. Uh, especially now we so before I used to say doctors lawyers well now there's another group of uh, high net worth individuals they're basically tech employees tech workers uh, people that work at Facebook Google they're getting paid two hundred thousand dollars a year 
and they don't know what to do with their money. And some of them just go on to the, you know, Robinhood and trade stocks. That that group is there. Uh, but there's other group that says, you know what, I'm just going to give it to somebody else to invest for me. Or I'm going to buy real estate or invest in, you know, something physical. So depending on their frame of mind and their thought process, uh, they're often happy to give you money for you to do, their, do the work, all the hard work of owning and operating real estate. Because anyone that's ever operated a piece of real estate knows it's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of challenges. Tenants don't pay rent. Uh, things break down. Things just happen. Fire, tornado, lightning strikes. And you got to deal with all those things. And it's things that people don't want to deal with. So by you having the experts to deal with them and demonstrating that you have some expertise, either through experience or through just knowledge, if you start small enough, there'll be money. To, there'll be plenty of money for, uh, for you to basically uh, draw upon to get deals done. But you have to show that professionalism, uh, which is the key. So are those connections coming from your network or would you say they're more so coming from you actively seeking those those people out? Well, so from, from your perspective, you, you'll start with your uh, basically badgers, fellow badgers. Start with people that you know in the business school. Uh, if you took a computer science class while you're in uh, UW, home run. Now you got you got friends that are going to get computer science jobs, getting paid 100000 plus. They're going to have disposable income. They're not going to have any student loans after six months. They're going to have no credit card debt. Uh, and they're going to have disposable income. And they're the perfect friends to have. So go hang out at the computer science building right now if you can. Uh, <laughs> friends there. Uh, unfortunately, we're, we, we can't go on campus. But if you could, that's what I would do. Uh, right, you know, right. Make make friends with people, uh, not just because they, they're going to make high incomes. I mean, just, you know, you have to enjoy enjoy being with people that have those personalities, too. Uh, computer science people have a different personality. Uh, I used to be in engineering. I know how different they are from, you know, business school students. Uh, but you, you'll have to basically find one person that trusts you. And that person will open 10 doors. That's how it happens. you got to get started. you just got to get started. Uh, and the, until you start doing it, you won't realize what skills you're missing, what, you know, what the next steps are. Okay. Uh, once you start doing it, then you'll, it, it just all starts falling into place because people want you to succeed. So suddenly you're trying to succeed. And it, again, if you have the expertise and, and the good skill set, it, it works out. If you don't have confidence in your ability, yes, it doesn't work out because you'll never, you'll never take the first step of, you know, talking to people. Uh, but once you have that confidence, uh, which, you know, either you get through your education, you get through your work experience, or you get through your parents. Someone has to give you the confidence that says, hey, look, you're going to make it no matter what happens, uh, because you know what you're doing. And that confidence is a key. Uh, and it, has to be, it can't be false confidence. It's got to be real confidence. I mean, you know, you've seen a few deals play out and you sort of say, OK, this is the steps. This is the process I'm going to take. And uh, I understand the city. I understand this market. I understand this asset class. And I'm going to do it. And single-family homes is the easiest one to start with. Uh, that, that, that one's a, really a no-brainer. Land is the second easiest, uh, as long as you can read through the ordinance codes on, on zoning and, and what you can build in the area and, and what people have tried to build and not been successful at um, if it's within the city. But if you go out to the Greenfield sites, just look at the master plan. It'll give you a good indication of what's planned for that area. And uh, just be patient. 10, 20 years, you'll be surprised how much... Uh, the valuation goes up by if you pay the right price uh, at, the, at a young age. But again, that's a harder sell because there's no cash flow coming in. So the it's harder to get investors for that type of investment. Uh, the yields are just too low. But uh, for you as a personally, that's a home run investment. 
Makes sense. Any uh, any closing comments, Arif? I would say advice to people graduating: pick the city, then pick your coworkers, and don't worry about the company's name or the brand of the company. Don't you know? People want to go work for this you know fancy name company. Doesn't matter. What matters is your you know the location where you're, where you're going to live for the next 10, 20 years. Is it growing? Is it uh, uh, going to be prosperous? And then the, your coworkers. If your coworkers are great, you're going to do great. If your coworkers are not great, you want to leave right away. So, you know, you've got to pick a place where you're happy with the people around you. Oftentimes, the Badgers choose companies that have a lot of Badgers. Just what I've seen. People that choose those type of companies tend to stay there very long periods of time. Those that choose a company that doesn't have as many Badgers tend to leave after one or two years. Some leave just because the job, they don't like the job. It's just too mundane, you know, building Argus models uh, from PDFs. Literally, somebody hands you a PDF and you, they say, here, go put this into Argus. Uh, that's hard to do because all you have is the output. You don't have some of the, sometimes the parts of the inputs. And that's a really tough job. And after two years of doing it, you just don't want to do it anymore. Um, so I would, I would say just focus on the city, focus on your coworkers, doing the interview process, you know, talk to the people about things other than like, hey, what's the job like? Or, you know, the, everybody asks the standard questions. Talk to them about sports. Talk to them about their activities outside of work and see if these are the people that you want to be stuck at the airport with talking to them about whatever it is. Uh, do they have similar hobbies? Do they have similar interests? And, you know, if they're into gardening and, you know, you, you have no concept of what gardening means, eh, that's not the right person, you know, that's not the right coworker to be with. Uh, and then those little things make such a big difference. Uh, I can't tell you enough how much the, the uh, your coworkers will make all the difference in the world uh, and the environment that you're in. The corporate culture is really important too, but again, that's usually hard to figure out uh, until you get there. So the be best advice again is just pick the right city, pick some good coworkers uh, that you're gonna be happy to work with. Hopefully they're badgers and don't worry so much about the, the company's name uh, because that actually doesn't matter that much. Experience what counts. People look at the experience that you have and that often will help uh, get you to the next step. Well, that's great. And uh, thanks again for uh, talking with us. We appreciate the conversation. I, I really enjoyed it.